This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio, Channel 80. I'm Rose Fox, Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Sam Slayton, Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. I'm filling in for Mark Rotella, who's on vacation this week. We're bringing you the very best book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you, and we want to answer your questions. Send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to us at pubweeklyradio. That's pubwkly radio. Today, we'll take a call from Gary May, the author of Bending Toward Justice. It's an exciting new book on the Voting Rights Act. Then PW senior news editor Andrew Albanese will call in from London with a report from the London Book Fair. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. Now, you pulled off something that looks really interesting. Tell me about that. I do. So um, this is a book by, uh, by Adam Grant. It's called Give and Take, A Revolutionary Approach to Success. And it's, uh, it's number seven on the bestseller charts from Viking Books. Um, I read an article about Adam Grant last week in the New York Times, uh, published, uh, it's originally from late March, but it's called Is Giving the Secret to Getting Ahead. And Adam Grant is, um, he's a really interesting guy. He's 31 years old. He's the youngest tenured and highest rated professor at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And what he studies is organizational psychology and workplace dynamics. So basically what, you know, what he's saying in this book is that giving is the key to to getting ahead. You know, it's something we've, we've heard often that, uh, you know, nice guys finish last or, um, you know, givers finish last or something like that. But Adam is an example of really the opposite of that in, at, at work. Um, and he's studied this and he's put it into practice. And, um, one of the studies that he originally did that, that kind of, um, led him to this conclusion, um, was conducted, I believe when he was an undergrad and, uh, he wanted to put some of his theories. He wanted to test some of his theories. And so he went into a, um, a fundraising call center at his school, which, you know, are renowned for being just miserable places to work. They have an enormous sure. rejection rate. You know, you're hearing no all day long. And so he was wondering, you know, what's a cost effective way to make this uh, a more profitable enterprise or a more successful and efficient enterprise. And so all he did was the, these um, these college students were raising funds that were going to a scholarship, and so he brought in um, a recipient of one of these scholarships to talk about all the different things that he had been able to do with the money from the scholarship. And immediately following that, um, they brought in far more money than they ever had. The people who worked at the call center were happier with their jobs. And when he went back to talk to them about why do you think suddenly you were more successful – all of them discounted the effect of the student coming in to talk to them about his positive experience with uh, receiving the funds. So he repeated it several times, and each time he, he found the same results. So you know he's arguing that it's even unconscious when you realize what you're what you're helping somebody with. There's an unconscious benefit, and it makes you more productive at work. And in give and take, he he talks about this you know in, in depth, and he really lives it out and talks about how it's how it's helped him in his own job. And he sounds like a very 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 busy man, but he's also very successful. So it seems like there's something we can learn from that. It's interesting. I feel like, especially if I look at, for example, Ted talks, there's all this stuff about, here's all this, here are all these things that you've always been told were morally right. And you may have uh, discounted them because you were more focused on getting ahead, but it turns out these moral behaviors are also the behaviors that lead to practical success. And it sounds to me like this is kind of an example of that. I actually, I find that approach kind of annoying sometimes because maybe people should just be moral because that's, that's the moral thing to do. It's the ethical thing to do. But I suppose that uh, this is a good way of communicating it to people who maybe are less focused on the ethical approach and more focused on the getting ahead approach. Exactly. It doesn't hurt to have tenure at the, at the other end of it. So you can you know, feel good about your day and you'll get tenure. Absolutely. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking about some hot books that are out this week. Uh, there's a couple of other books that are coming out. They haven't hit the bestseller list, or maybe they haven't yet, uh, but I wanted to highlight a couple of them. Also in nonfiction, we have The Third Coast, uh, When Chicago Built the American Dream, and this is by Thomas Deja. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's D-Y-J-A. 
And um, he's a novelist and a Chicago native. And this is a nonfiction book about the history of Chicago from the 1930s to about the 1950s. And Chicago really influenced the post-war American way of life. So you had Mies van der Rohe building skyscrapers that were emulated all over the country, uh, soap operas, uh, businesses that we all know, like McDonald's and Playboy, got their start in Chicago, and really every facet of Americana. And uh, I think calling it the third coast is a, a particular slap at the people who refer to the flyover states, you know, and the idea that everything interesting happens in New York or LA, and there's nothing in between. And he's really saying that no, Chicago was where it's at. And uh, he also talks about race and politics, and the ways that those influence Chicago, and then Chicago influenced the rest of the country. It sounds like a rich history. I've, I've only been in New York for a couple of years now, but I'm, I've become more and more interested in um, these histories of dynamic urban environments and city planning and, and all the things that go into them and, and the people that move through them. It sounds like a really fascinating book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, we gave it a starred review in Publishers Weekly, and we said it is a luminous, empathetic, and engrossing portrait of a city. So as someone who absolutely loves cities, I'm definitely going to take a look for this one. I'm Sam Slayton, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking about um, books that are publishing this week, and who knows if they'll be bestsellers next week. We'll see. Rose was just talking about The Third Coast, um, a book about Chicago and building the American dream. But more on ground level, we have another interesting book that, that's coming out this week, Edward O. Wilson's Letters to a Young Scientist, taking a cue from Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet. Edward O. Wilson, who is perhaps the most famous myrmecologist, which is a specialist in ants. He's written many, many, many books across his, his long career. He's won two Pulitzer Prizes. And in this book, he's basically passing the baton on to, obviously, the next generation of scientists. And he touches on um, a range of, of, um, of topics from how to pick a field. Um, he suggests not going where everybody else is going, but picking something that no one else is doing. You know, you want to be the expert in your field. You like know, the most famous myrmecologist. Like the most famous <laughs> myrmecologist in the, in the history of myrmecology. Thing, what a great thing to put on your business cards. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it's interesting because he started as a kid in Alabama, just rooting through the lot by his house looking for different kinds of ants. And he carried that with him. And, you know, so he went from exploring the lot next to his house in Alabama to exploring these incredibly far-flung, exotic, beautiful places. And, um, you know, he said he wanted to do it because he wanted to be outside and he liked science and that was the best way to do it. In addition to just being a, an interesting book that, that offers some intriguing technical tidbits and little, little pieces of trivia. Um, he also has, you know, a lot of touches on a lot of guiding principles in terms of, uh, you know, for example, if, if, um, if you make a mistake, admit it immediately and then move on. You know, it's, there's a lot of advice here, not just for scientists. Um, and I should also add, uh, I interviewed Edward, O. Wilson for Publishers Weekly a couple of weeks ago. And speaking of ad admitting mistakes, uh, we had a great conversation for about 30 minutes or so, and um, he was more than happy to speak with me. And at the end of the interview, I realized I had not recorded a single word of it. Oh, no. Yes. So so I, I remembered what he had said about admitting your mistakes and trying to move on. So I immediately called him back and admitted my mistake and said, Mr. Wilson, I'm sorry I didn't record a minute of this. And he said, well, let's do it again. And at the end of that second interview, he said, if you didn't get any of that, We'll do it a third time. That's so nice. And that's a very scientific approach. Exactly. You, you, just, you just repeat the experiment and until it compare works. the results until it works. Sure, yes. Sure, sure. Yes, indeed. I did have one other book I wanted to talk about. This one's actually a graphic novel. And I always love talking about those because I feel like graphic novels and comic books really are still seen as kind of kid stuff. And in fact, there's a lot of tremendous writing and art that's going on in the graphic novel world. And this one is Julio's Day. It's by Gilbert Hernandez. And uh, he's been doing a lot of work on Love and Rockets, which is a renowned graphic series. And uh, now that he's uh, becoming a little better known, he's put out this particular book. Uh, it's a hundred year story in 100 pages of a hundred year old man living in a small, mostly Mexican town in the American Southwest. And he's born in 1900 and it go follows his life all the way up to the year 2000. So that's a tremendous time of change and transformation. And uh, it's interesting that he, you, it's very focused on this guy in his little town. And so you know, the outside world kind of 
affects the town, but the town remains the same in some key ways. And uh, the PW Review, we've raved about this book. You said it's a marvelous and tightly scripted epic whose last page is a heart stopper and lovesick heartbreak and tragedy alternate with magical realist elements like a month's long rainstorm while dark skies and the horror of death's oblivion throw a shadow over everything. It so sounds is... kind of like a southwestern uh, portrait of the artist as a, as a young man, in a way. Yeah, yeah, in a lot of ways. Moving through an individual's life. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, I've, I've always been interested in these very narrow, focused ways of looking at something like an entire country or an entire century through the eyes of just one person. And obviously, there are going to be some things that you don't capture, but there will be other things that you do. And it's great to see a book like this that that makes it very vivid, that really literally illustrates it and and lets you imagine what it might be like to be this guy in this little town, which his life is totally different from mine. And so I'd love to pick this up and find out a little bit more about it. It'd be interesting to see if the the artwork changes too aesthetically as, as things go along. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Sam Slayton, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Gary May will tell us all about the Voting Rights Act and how it transformed American democracy. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Sam Slayton, filling in for Mark Rotella this week. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Gary May on the line. His new book is Bending Toward Justice, The Voting Rights Act, and the Transformation of American Democracy. Thanks for joining us, Gary. Thanks for having me. It's very nice to have you here. Um, Tell us a little bit about the history of the Voting Rights Act for our listeners who might not be intimately familiar with it. Well, most of the accounts of the Voting Rights Act have been done by legal scholars who have focused on the various legal issues uh, involved, uh, which have again gone to the Supreme Court. What I've done is to write what I call a people's history of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, again, we, th- we think of Martin Luther King and Lyndon Johnson as the two principal players in this story. But what I found is that there are perhaps a hundred or so people who might be considered uh, the fathers and mothers of the Voting Rights Act, people who have been kind of lost to history, who I hope to to rescue from oblivion, who for decades before Martin Luther King launched his voting rights campaign in Selma, Alabama in January 1965, were actually fighting for voting rights in Alabama, which is my focus, as early as the 1930s. And so you have a variety of people. You've got men and women who are involved. You have high school students, uh, college students, and even some small children who who demonstrated. And the center of your book is still those events in Selma, Alabama. Yeah. Uh, and, and that takes up a lot of the space. So what led you to focus on this earlier part of the history before moving on to those events? Well, it had been missed. It it really had not received the attention it deserved. I mean, one of the reasons why King chose Alabama was because there was already a movement in place, people who he could call on, people he could rely upon to, uh, to demonstrate. And without that foundation, it would have been very difficult, I think, for him to be successful there. Gary, could you tell us a little bit about that foundation? I mean, what what were these men, women, and children doing in the 30s to agitate for for these rights? Well, the leaders of the voting rights movement in Selma in the 30s and 40s and, and beyond that were a couple named Sam and Amelia Boynton, and they helped to found an NAACP chapter in Selma and also create a... Uh, Voters League in Alabama, uh, or Dallas County, where Selma was located, Dallas County Voters League. And they'd hold workshops preparing people to go down to the courthouse to register. Uh, You know, they paid a a terrible price for their efforts. Sam Boynton uh, was harassed, Uh, his business was ruined, and ultimately uh, uh, he had several strokes and uh, was confined to a nursing home until his death in in the early 60s. Uh, After that, his wife, Amelia, took over. In his last days, Sam Boynton, the first thing he would say when he was confined to this nursing home, he would see people, he would say to them, are you a registered voter? And he would always add, a voteless people is a hopeless people. 
Wow. He, he begged his wife to continue uh, his struggle uh, after he was gone, uh, and she did. Also involved was a young man, 22-year-old worker for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, named Bernard Lafayette, who went to Selma in 1962, again, three years before uh, King arrived. And uh, at, at the age of 22, he's already a veteran civil rights worker. He's been a freedom writer, uh, been involved in the sit-in movement. And uh, he was looking for a place to work, and he went to the SNCC headquarters, and he and his uh, boss went over to the map, which showed where civil rights workers were working in the South. And over Dallas County and Selma, its county seat, was a big X. And Lafayette asked, well, what's that? And his boss, James Foreman, said, that's, uh, that's Selma. Uh, it, it's just hopeless uh, for us. The white people are too mean, and the black people are too scared. And Lafayette said, well, that's where I want to go. And so he arrives there. He discovers that the situation is very grim. Less than 1% of the black population uh, has been registered to vote. And there's no surprise why that is so. They had to go down to the registrar's office. They had to fill out a three-page application. And if they made the slightest mistake, they'd be rejected. Then they'd have to take an oral exam where they answered questions that uh, a Harvard Law School graduate couldn't pass, such as, name every county judge in Alabama. Wow. There were 67 of them. So Lafayette arrives there. He, he, he talks to people in the black community, uh, and slowly he gets people involved. But his, his primary support came from people with less to lose, high school students, college students. They, they bring people down to the courthouse. He himself, in June, uh, is attacked and is almost uh, killed when presumably Klansmen um, gave him a very bad beating uh, with a pistol. But he survived that. And then he is succeeded by someone else. So over these years, a voting rights movement is, is created in uh, Selma, Alabama. And then what did happen there in 1965? It's a fascinating story. King's campaign begins with some promise for the first time teachers actually got involved uh, marching on the courthouse trying to register uh, previously they they hadn't dared to because their jobs were dependent on white school boards right but now they too primarily because their students were saying are you registered to vote how can you teach me a course in government if you don't vote so finally, in, in February of uh, 1965, they march on the courthouse, a hundred of them waving toothbrushes, an indication that they would be happy to spend a night in jail and uh, risk their jobs. But King's campaign there begins to flounder. He's not creating the event that he needs to shock the country and to push President Johnson to submit a Voting Rights Act. And he's almost ready to pull out of uh, Selma, to go elsewhere, someplace more dangerous, perhaps. And what happens is, at about the same time, in nearby uh, city of Marion, Alabama, civil rights demonstrators uh, have held a church service at night, and their plan is to march on the jail where one of their colleagues is being held prisoner. Uh, as they're beginning to march, they are savagely attacked by... Marion Police, Alabama State Troopers, and in the melee that followed, one young man named Jimmy Lee Jackson is shot and killed by an Alabama State Trooper while Jackson is trying to protect his mother. The Marion people are heartsick. They want to do something. They want to take Jimmy Lee Jackson's coffin and put it on the steps of George Wallace's uh, office in the Montgomery State Capitol. And it's from that event that the march on Sunday, March 7th, comes, which, of course, is known uh, as Bloody Sunday. Right. Uh, a, a group of about 150 marchers led by uh, John Lewis uh, and his colleague Hosea Williams uh, attempt to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge. They really hadn't planned to march from Selma to Montgomery. That would be, you know, it was a, a long march, and, and they thought they would just be arrested and spend the night in jail. But when they got to the bridge, they were confronted by state troopers, many of them on horseback, 
armed with uh, cattle pro- electric cattle prods and baseball bats as well as guns. Uh, they were attacked. John Lewis had almost a uh, concussion, fell to the ground, and said to himself, I'm going to die here. When someone called for an ambulance, the sheriff of Selma, Jim Clark, cried out, let the buzzards eat them. Uh, This event was covered by the major networks. And that evening, ABC News broke into its regular scheduled programming, which ironically was the Sunday movie of the week, which was showing Judgment at Nuremberg about the Nazi war trials. Mm Mm-hmm. And they showed the footage, there was no narration, and you could see people being beaten, you could see tear gas floating around, and the country was stunned by this event. And this was the turning point. People besieged Lyndon Johnson in Washington, calling for a Voting Rights Act. Two weeks later, he submits it to the Congress, and it passes. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with author Gary May about the history of the Voting Rights Act, which is pretty compelling stuff. Now, I hadn't heard the story of Lyndon Johnson's speech to Congress until I read it in your book. Ah. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that speech and the effect it had? Sure. It was probably the greatest speech of his presidency. Uh, Johnson had wanted to submit a voting rights bill to the Congress when he was elected with such a tremendous victory in, over Barry Goldwater in 1964, but he hesitated because the previous July, July of 1964, he had signed into law the Civil Rights Act, which President Kennedy had sent to the Congress, uh, desegregating public accommodations. And he felt that the country and the Congress weren't yet ready for another major uh, civil rights bill. But the events in Selma forced him to accelerate his timetable. So he planned to present the bill to a joint session of the Congress, and does. I think it was March 15th. The speech was written by Richard Goodwin, who was an aide to President Kennedy and President Johnson. It's interesting, Johnson was at first annoyed because the assignment to write the speech had been given to another of his aides who had a background in public relations. And Johnson said, are you crazy? I want Dick Goodwin. He's Jewish. He knows what it means to suffer in this country. So Goodwin showed up at his office one morning, and he's told, you've got a few hours to write what's going to be the most important speech of Johnson's presidency. He writes this, uh, the draft of the speech. Johnson telephones him and says, you remember my, the story I told you about when I was just out of college and I taught young Mexican-Americans in uh, a small uh, Texas town? And uh, Goodwin said, of course, I remember it. And Johnson said, you put that in the speech. And so Johnson rushes to the Congress. The entire speech is not loaded in the teleprompter, uh, but when Johnson starts to deliver it, it's not you know, formally put together yet. And Jack Valenti, his aide, has to sneak it in in the middle of while well, he's giving the speech. And it was just this extraordinary speech coming from a Texan, coming from a Southerner who, when he was a senator and congressman, his civil rights record was, you know, not good at all. And Johnson is saying, you know, we're, we're faced with this crisis now, and we have to live up to our ideals. And I, I think of these young Mexican-American students I taught when I was a young man, and I saw what poverty uh, and discrimination had done to them. Uh, and then, incredibly, Johnson finishes the speech by saying, and we shall overcome, you know, reciting the anthem of the civil rights movement. And Martin Luther King, watching the speech on television, we're told by aides who had joined him, uh, they noticed that a tear came down the side of his face. And Johnson just electrified the Congress and the country by that speech. It's an incredibly dramatic uh, behind-the-scenes look. Since the events described in your book, Gary, uh, how do you think um, notions of democracy have changed since then? Well, I don't know if they've changed. I mean, certainly uh, African-Americans can now uh, vote uh, freely without the violence that prevented that for, uh, for so many decades. But all we need to do is, is to look back a year, and we can see this voter suppression movement that uh, occurred in the country. Uh, when Republicans won many of the state legislatures and governorships in the uh, 2010 congressional elections, they began to, to pass uh, laws through their 
legislatures attempting to block minority voting, voter IDs, changing the way that, uh, say, the League of Women Voters recruited, signed up new voters, restricting the uh, early voting and and other attempts. I mean, this is a story that is ongoing. What's so extraordinary about the African-American experience is they are the only people who were first denied the right to vote because they were property. They were slaves. Then during Reconstruction, they were briefly allowed to vote and voted enthusiastically, served in the U.S. Congress. There were two uh, African-American U.S. senators as well. Then Reconstruction ended, and the Jim Crow era returned, and they could not vote until the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And now, 2010, 2012, and, and even today, there is an effort to again go back and rob them of that fundamental American right. So John Lewis called this a struggle of a lifetime. And in fact, it's, it's the American struggle to allow all of our people to vote. I'm Sam Slayton, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with author Gary May about the Voting Rights Act. So, Gary, why now? Why the sudden backlash? Well, America is becoming a different country in a way, and in many respects, a better country. We have a more multi-ethnic, multi-racial society, and for many Americans, this is a very disturbing trend. I'm sure you both remember the night of the... Uh, 2012 election when you know Bill O'Reilly proclaims you know the this is not America anymore, and people on on the right are uh, tweeting uh, you know we've got to march on the Capitol to to do something about this march on Washington instead of accommodating themselves to the new American reality, people are trying to suppress that reality, and just this week we have. Justice Scalia making outrageous remarks about the Voting Rights Act, which, you know, he, he calls a, a racial preferment because it doesn't protect white people. I mean, this, first of all, it's outrageous for a Supreme Court justice to be discussing, uh, you know, pending decisions, you know, which have not yet been made. And second, that is simply not true. One of the interesting things that I discovered that the first time African Americans could vote in you know, freely was after the passage of the Voting Rights Act in the off-year election uh, primary in, in 1966. African Americans turn out in huge numbers because they've now been allowed to register without having to take uh, literacy tests or pay poll taxes. But what's also so fascinating, and people don't realize this, Scalia apparently doesn't realize this, white voters in Alabama, poor, illiterate whites who had been unable to vote, also voted in that election. And in fact, in greater numbers than African Americans. So the Voting Rights Act protects all Americans' right to vote. So tell us a little bit about what's going on with the Voting Rights Act in the Supreme Court right now. You mentioned some pending decisions. That's right. Uh, Come June or July, uh, the court, it it looks like, by a vote of five to four, uh, five Republicans uh, versus four Democrats are going to uh, strike down what is probably the most powerful provision of the Voting Rights Act, and that is Section 5. What Section 5 requires is that those nine states which are fully covered by the act and parts of seven others, places that have had a very bad record of discrimination uh, when it comes to voting, are required before they make any changes in their voting practices to submit those changes to the Justice Department for what is called preclearance for approval before they're able to do that. And the argument that Shelby County, Alabama, which has brought the suit to the Supreme Court, is arguing that we don't need uh, Section 5 anymore. We have an African-American president. Uh, people, uh, blacks can vote freely in the South. But, uh, I, I mean, it's astounding that Shelby County would be the one to bring this lawsuit because they have one of the worst records of 
discrimination in, uh, in, in voting. At a city named Calera in Shelby County submitted to the Justice Department, because they're under Section 5, their plan to redraw their voting districts. The Justice Department rejected their uh, request because it would eliminate the single black councilman on the Calera City Council. Uh, they went ahead anyway, held the election. The African-American councilman lost. Justice Department came in, said you've got to hold the election again. They did, and the, uh, the African-American councilman regained his seat. Mm-hmm. So the idea that we don't need the Voting Rights Act, we don't need Section 5 uh, anymore is, is simply not true. And given the fact of this voter suppression movement, which is on, ongoing, just the other night I read that in North Carolina, the legislature is trying to pass a bill which states that if North Carolina's college students register to vote in an area which is not where their home is, their parents would not be able to take advantage of a tax deduction because their children are dependents. But there are plenty of children who are dependents who are also off at college. Yes, that's right. But it's an attempt to weaken the power of of African-American voting. And because, for for obvious reasons, most of them vote Democratic. So a Republican legislature, this is how they're attempting to, again, suppress the black vote. And, I mean, the Voting Rights Act, it was clear, was created not only to deal with the most obvious infringements, literacy tests, poll taxes, but what Chief Justice Warren later called subtle devices, because they expected that the South primarily would try to uh, come up with devices uh, that were were new. And and so we, we still need this act. Great. Well, we're running a little short on time, so I just wanted to know if you had any last comments for our listeners before we head out. Well, you know, I can't think of any more important and indeed inspiring story than the history of the civil rights uh, movement and voting rights movement. I hope I've done it justice in, in bending toward justice. I think you absolutely have. We've been talking with Gary May. You can find his new book, Bending Toward Justice, in stores right now. Gary, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm Sam Slayton. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, senior news editor Andrew Albanese will call us from across the Atlantic with a report from the London Book Fair. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Sam Slayton, filling in for Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today, senior news editor Andrew Albanese is calling us from the London Book Fair. Thanks for joining us across the Atlantic, Andrew. My pleasure, Rose. And hello, Sam. How's it going, Andrew? Very well, thank you. So walk us around the fair. What's, what's it like there? Well... It's a beautiful sunny day here in London. You don't get to say that all the time, so I that's thought that's mentioning. Uh, and it really, the fair got off to a very hot start. Um, I think this is probably the third year in a row that they're going to post uh, a pretty significant uh, gain in attendance this year. The show floor certainly seems pretty busy, and that's a good sign for the publishing economy that people are uh, showing up to book fairs. Um, mm-hmm. Especially, I mean, you may remember in 2010, uh, those in the publishing community certainly do, that the 2010 book fair was uh, pretty much postponed here because of a volcano in Iceland, which I still can't pronounce how that volcano is supposed to be said. Um, but it really sort of put a nail in the London book fair for that year. Attendance was off by 50%. Nobody could fly. Nobody could get here. And there were real questions as to whether people would use that experience to question whether they should be coming to book fairs at all. You know, if they didn't miss the fair that much that year, would they come back the following year? Well, the answer is a resounding yes. Uh, Ever since 2010, the numbers have continued to go up uh, and set record levels. So uh, I'm feeling pretty good about book fairs right now. So tell me a little bit about why people do go to these book fairs. What's, What's bringing everyone back? Yeah, well, you know, people go to book fairs for a number of reasons. I think first and foremost, it's always a good networking opportunity to meet the people that uh, you're doing business with. 
Uh, also, there's a there's a rights trade. Uh, people, you know, sign up sub rights for different books in different countries. Uh, books are pretty much sold in territories around the world and in many different languages. So publishers come to these fairs to license their books uh, in other territories. Now, that's been under quite a bit of pressure in recent years because of digital. Um, and, and there's a lot of speculation that the, the market is collapsing now from territories because the, the, the Internet is global uh, into languages, which is really what you know people read in the language they read in. That's really what we should be trading. But uh, the rights of trade has been pretty good this year. There's been a number of big books, and there's a lot of excitement, and there's more agents coming. So the rights trade is still alive and well. And also there's a professional development element of rights fairs. And that's really grown, especially in the digital era. People come to these fairs to uh, see what their friends are doing, to see what their you know, rivals are doing, and to just you know, talk them and make themselves feel better, I think, about this digital transition that is, that is unnerving many, but also offering a lot of innovation. Now, speaking of digital, Andrew, Neil Gaiman was the keynote speaker at the Digital Minds Conference. Can you tell us a little bit about what he had to say? Yeah, Neil is something else. He really is a very special talent. You know, he was on my flight actually over, and I tried uh, tried in vain to get an upgrade so I could sit next to him for six hours. I thought that would. <laughs> you thought my, maybe been, some of it would rub off. That would have been a great experience <laughs> for me to have six uninterrupted hours. Probably not an experience Neil Gaiman would have relished, but. Um, so he was the keynote speaker at what was known as, what's known as the Digital Minds Conference, and that's sort of this little day-long digital conference that gets going before the book fair. Now, they refer to it as sort of the accelerator for the London book fair. Uh, and Neil was, you know, his typical brilliant self. You know, he he shied away from giving grand prognostications about what technology was going to bring. Um, and you know, he basically told them that he had no predictions for them, only that things are going to continue to change. Uh, he urged them not to make enemies out of uh, Amazon and Google and to you know, embrace the fact that what is coming down the pipe might be pretty cool, is going to be pretty cool. It might you know, disrupt some of the traditional book market that we now know. Uh, it may make your local bookstore uh, struggle a little bit. But you know, there's a lot of good stuff that's coming uh, down the pipe from this. So he said, you know, a quote from him that I really liked is, you know, he said that the model is to make mistakes, you know, to surprise yourself, to try anything, to fail, then fail better. And ultimately that leads us to succeed in ways we never could have imagined years ago. So he was quite engaging and quite quite personal. It was a very intimate talk. And I think the publishers in the room were, were really delighted to have his point of view. Now, I, I read in your coverage of that of, of that. Um keynote address, Andrew, that um, Neil Gaiman said, quote, the truth is, whatever we make up is likely to be right. That seems to me to be a little bit evasive. What's your take on that? <laughs> I think what he's saying is that he, he didn't want, he likened the digital to a, a frontier where there really are no rules. So he was urging people, I think, to break rules. I think he was urging people to, uh, you know, not play by old arrangements. And he was, I think he was basically saying, if you have something that you think is right, well, by God, now is the time to try it. Um, and it may work for you. It may not work for everybody. This is not going to be a one-size-fits-all revolution. Uh, but by all means, don't, don't make rules where there are no rules. Just sort of do what you feel, you know, follow what you feel is right. And if it doesn't work, you'll do something else. So Very inspirational just... take on the digital space. <laughs> yeah, he was, it, it was a lot of times something like that can come off as very soft, but it really did. It was the right note for him to strike, and I think the publishers, uh, who are facing quite a bit of change, found that to be quite comforting. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW Senior News Editor Andrew Albanese about the London Book Fair. So you mentioned that uh, a lot of big deals get made at these fairs for books that are going to be hitting the shelves in a year or two. Uh, what's getting the buzz right now? Well, that I'm going to have to wait for another day for. I would love to be able to tell you that right now, but the first day of traffic is just winding up now at the fair. So I should have that information for you uh, in another hour, which doesn't help us out now. <laughs> <laughs> and um, also also being announced in a couple of hours are the Pulitzer Prizes, which I know everybody is uh, eagerly waiting for. So, well, I uh, think we're waiting if there's going to be a Pulitzer Prize this year, yes? <laughs> possibly, possibly. <laughs> Uh, but yes, that's true. That's the downside of calling you on the early days of the fair. Um, but what has been happening so far? Well, mostly so far, what we've well, two two trends that I think are really worth pointing out. Uh, and the first is self-publishing has mm -hmm. had a huge impact this year. Now, last year, the fair sort of opens did, opened its doors to uh, self-publishers for the first time, 
and they were really well received. Uh, there was a lot of action. There was some some programming for them, but you know there was a lot of authors who generally don't come to the London Book Fair, who came in and began looking around at their self-publishing options. And there were a few of those authors. Uh, one named Rachel Abbott strikes me. Uh, she wrote a book called Only the Innocent, who have even cracked uh, the Kindle bestseller list. In fact, Rachel hit number one uh, mm-hmm. with her book in the UK. We're starting to see a lot more of that. And this year, uh, with an eye towards the future, the London Book Fair added a ton of programming for authors and for self-publishing. And I couldn't get in to any of the sessions today that I wanted to go see. I was literally on the outside looking in. Uh, Mark Coker from Smashwords, a prominent self-publishing firm, was giving one talk. Um, and the halls were just brimming with authors and people who were interested in self-publishing. So I think that's something definitely to keep a watch on. There's a lot of buzz about self-publishing this year. Um, one of the other things that was is very prominently hanging over the fair is Amazon. Uh, mm-hmm. Amazon Kindle Direct Publishing has a stand here, and there was an editorial in one of the dailies here about edit, you know can Amazon destroy the book business. So yeah, Amazon is is kind of casting a bit of a shadow over the book fair this year. So speaking of uh, Amazon, Andrew. At the uh, at the great debate, the um, the resolution that was to be debated was quote Amazon is a positive influence on the publishing industry. Can you tell us a little bit about how that debate went and how each side argued their case? Yeah, that was a really terrific session. Well, every year here in London, we have what's known as the great debate, and it's an old Oxford style debate with two debating teams and a moderator, and they put forth a resolution. And as you know, Sam, this year's resolution was Amazon is a positive influence on the publishing industry. Now, for our listeners uh, who love Amazon and love buying books at a, at a cheap price, there's a, quite a bit of anxiety in the publishing industry about Amazon. Um, so basically, the point of the debate was to question whether Amazon is a friend or a foe to the publishing industry. Uh, so we had two people, Jennifer Aitley from, the, from Daily Lit in Plimpton and Owen Purcell, who's the editor of New Island Books, arguing for the resolution that Amazon is a positive influence. Uh, and Tim Godfrey, who's the executive of the Booksellers Association here in the U.K., and author Robert Levine, who wrote a fascinating book called Free Ride, uh, which is about copyright and sort of uh, the, the download culture, arguing that, you know, Amazon is not a good thing for publishing. Uh, not surprisingly, the audience needed some convincing that Amazon is a friend. They, they In the pre-poll, they pretty much voted, you know, voted against Amazon being a friend of theirs. But, you know, the, the, the case for Amazon was really quite good. Basically, uh, Amazon was taking advantage of the Internet, is the argument. They stepped in and did something that publishers failed to do for themselves, and now they're reaping the rewards of that, is the argument that Owen Purcell made. Um, And it's not really the right response, I think, to be afraid of Amazon. We should come up with better ideas. We should let Amazon's example, you know, inspire the publishing industry to do better things. On the other side of the debate, uh, the Booksellers Association's Tim Godfrey noted that, well, Amazon isn't really competing anymore. They're just killing competition. Uh, And indeed, Amazon is a very large company, and they've been able to cement in place uh, some advantages that their competitors in the independent world certainly don't have. Uh, And there's a couple of advantages that are particularly difficult. In the U.K., for example, they've structured their business uh, out of Luxembourg and set up a transfer company basically in the U.K., which means that you know, they can charge a lower VAT tax to consumers here. Independents uh, can't do that. I believe the VAT tax is around 20% on books. Uh, it's very Dr. high. Said. Mm-hmm. And it's only 3% for this Luxembourg, for Amazon, because they're based in Luxembourg. And also that keeps their corporate taxes lower. So that's more money that they can pour into keeping prices low. And, of course, they have their own, for the Kindle, they have their own proprietary system. So, no, Amazon isn't so much into competing. Amazon is into killing competition because they compete on price where independents can't, and then they get you to buy their Kindle, and they lock you in with their proprietary system. So I think both of them argued that, uh, well, Amazon certainly has done a lot, and certainly they have really popularized digital reading uh, where other people have failed before. Uh, at the same time, they're trying to foreclose on any competition in digital reading in the future. So it was a fascinating argument. I'm Sam Slayton, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW Senior News Editor Andrew Albanese about the London Book Fair. Now, you mentioned uh, a pre-debate audience poll that found uh, the majority of the audience against uh, Amazon, the notion that Amazon is a positive influence in the publishing industry. Did you have a chance to speak to anybody in the audience and get their take on it after the debates? 
I did, actually. And, you know, I've been speaking to people pretty much nonstop since then. Uh, and there's a very – I want to be, uh, you know, polite here, but there's a very anti-Amazon feeling <laughs> among many people in the audience because they do feel like Amazon is attempting to cut out publishers and you know, there was a quote from Amazon that was that was repeated by Robert Levine on the panel, where Amazon basically said at one point, all they need is a reader and a writer, and they'll do the rest. Well, you know, if you're one of the people in the room that's you know a publisher and you're not a reader and writer, you're one of the people that add value in the middle. You know, Levine said, well, Amazon thinks you have no place in the publishing business. Now you should probably think about that and act accordingly. You know, I, I think that people in the publishing community and in the bookselling community feel like there's really no way for them to compete with Amazon and their low, low prices for books because Amazon is a platform. Amazon is trying to get by selling Kindles and they're willing to take, you know, sort of a loss on books in the short term to build up use of their platform. And that's not a luxury that most traditional booksellers have. So does Amazon have a presence at the London Book Fair? And if so, is it, um, you know, a, a reinforced bunker? Amazon does have a presence here. Actually, the, the Amazon publishing unit is here, but they don't have a stand. They're mostly just walking the floor. Uh, but the Kindle Direct publishing unit does have a stand in the digital zone here, right by a theater, and they're putting on presentations for authors um, pretty much throughout the day. Um, and it's really quite impressive because they do have a number of people who never would have gotten a sniff from a traditional publisher who are suddenly selling you know, tens of thousands of copies, and it's changed their lives. And it's got a bit of a revival edge to it sometimes when they speak. Um, and that's not to say there's not a lot of uh, cringeworthy material coming out of the self-publishing community, but I think it also was telling that there is quite a bit of good stuff that isn't getting into mainstream publishing, and Amazon is there to sort of you know, fill in the gap. So I guess the question is really whether Amazon is trying to widen that gap that they are, that they are filling, and I, I suppose only time will tell. Yeah, I think Amazon's trying to widen the gap and then build a wall around it and then dig a moat. <laughs> <laughs> Quite possibly. Um, so tell us a little bit about who else is at the fairs. And you, you mentioned that there are these uh, self-publishing authors who are there and a lot of authors in general. Uh, is there public access? Because there was a lot of debate here in the States about Book Expo America, BEA, and whether uh, to allow in members of the public, and eventually they sort of settled on this one-day solution where mostly it's an industry event and then people, members of the public, get to go in one day out of the fair. So how, how did London Book Fair handle this? Well, that is a great question, and that is certainly a future that I think the fair is wrestling with. In general, no, there is not public access, but there are there is access for authors and people who are interested in, uh, you know, you can buy a pass as an author and come into the fair. And that's what's happening a lot this year. So in a sense, yes, the public is coming in, but not consumers. And we can differentiate between people who are uh, the public who are interested in somehow doing a book through self-publishing who are getting into the fair this year and in pretty large numbers. And I have a feeling that the influence on the overall attendance is going to be pretty dramatic from that choice. But, you know, you can't come into the fair uh, as a general consumer and, you know, go to stands and buy books. Um, pretty much all of the major publishers and all, a ton of independent publishers and, and a lot of publishers, you know, globally are all here exhibiting their books. But they're mostly here to do business with uh, other people in the publishing industry. They're not selling books uh, to consumers. But you have to wonder if that's going to change at some point. Now that we're letting people come for self-publishing, you know, and you're getting much more traffic on the floor, if it doesn't make sense to have one day where you do let the general public come in, where you do reach out. I think this is a trend that you're going to see more of in the publishing community, which used to be a heavily business-to-business -business trade. You know, basically right. publishers sold their books to retailers, and retailers sold them to consumers. But in the digital age now, publishers are going to have to reach out to consumers directly. And book fairs might be a good way to put a personal face on that. It's true. And, you know, in my, my six years at PW, um, which doesn't feel like very much sometimes, I've still seen some trends change over going to BEA every year. And one of those trends is how many books publishers are giving away. And it's it's been a really interesting barometer of the publishing economy. So we show up and people get, are giving away finished books or sometimes uh, advanced review copies of various books that are about to come out. What's that trend like at London? You'll see a ton of that here. That is really going on. Now, interestingly, more and more e-galleys are becoming common, where people are actually giving away digital versions. And you know, you may remember as a reviews editor how 
that was very difficult. Just a few years ago, publishers were very reticent to give away digital galleys. Yes, absolutely, because uh, they were worried about them being pirated. That's so true. You know, and, they, and when they did give them away, they, they watermarked them or otherwise made them pretty useless for you. So they were pretty annoying to read, I gather, back then. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. People are you know, giving away e-galleys to people. I think that's a smart move because that's simply the way people are, a lot of people are reading now on their devices. You know, you used to have to come to one of these book fairs if you were you know, a publisher looking to buy rights, and you'd go home with two suitcases full of books. You know, now it costs you 50 bucks a bag to put them on an airline, and you, know, you break your back carrying them. No longer. Now you put your e-galley on your Kindle, and you can, you can leave the hall with a library pretty much. Um, nevertheless, there are quite a few books on display. There are a number of authors who are, are here you know, doing some pitching for their books. And, uh, yeah, you're seeing quite a bit of uh, galleys walk away. I think that the downside of the digital galleys is that there are no more autographing lines for those. Are you going to have somebody write on your Kindle with a Sharpie? <laughs> well, you know, you do have those virtual signings, which I've never understood. But, uh, yeah, maybe, we'll, that's, maybe that's something we should put some effort into, Rose. We'll come up with a way to sort of recreate the, uh, the book signing at yeah, the something... digital age. Something like that. So, so are, are publishers handing out little keychain flash drives with their digital books on them? Is that how it's working? You know, I haven't seen too many of those this year. I'm, I'm hoping that that era is gone too. <laughs> I would come mm-hmm. back from every book fair with all of these flash drives, and uh, yes. So, <laughs> no, so I, how do the books get on the Kindle? You, do you just show up and they offer to email it to you? Um, Generally, there's a service that they use, right? Probably most of them use NetGalley, I'm guessing. But uh, mm-hmm. I know there are generally some other services, too, where you sign up and you go to, like, a common place and you, you can download it from there. Got it. Makes sense. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us from London. It's been a pleasure talking to you and getting a little bit of a virtual tour of the fair. My pleasure. And I look forward to seeing you both back in New York next week. Absolutely. Thanks, thank you so much. Hope you're not too jet-lagged. <laughs> Doing good. Good. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Sam Slayton. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pubwkly radio on Twitter. We would love to hear from you. Tune in next week for more excellent book talk right here on Sirius XM Book Radio, Channel 80. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.